years ago, I was having coffee with a colleague in ministry at a church across town from where I was that was just booming. Uh, we were both in charge of the discipleship ministries in our respective churches. Uh, I was at the kind of old establishment church, uh, the kind of place that, where if I came to somebody in town who was my age and uh, I mentioned where I you know, worked, they're like, oh yeah, my parents go there. Uh, she, at the other hand, was at the the, the very hip and thriving buzz church in town, uh, the kind of place that was, uh, you know, always edgy, slightly irreverent, everything was on trend. Uh, I kid you not, I actually went to a small group launch at this church to give some feedback and to kind of, you know, see what, what they were up to. And I was like the third oldest person there. Um, and they stuck me with all of the other 30 and 40 year olds who were complaining that the music was too loud because it was. Um, so she and I were just kind of, you know, catching up over coffee, meeting to brainstorm, talk best practices and all that. And she seemed really out of sorts. And I found out after some conversation that she had just been released from the hospital where she was being treated for exhaustion, and she determined in that time, or the doctors determined in that time, that she had developed an irregular heartbeat. She'd been working 60 hours per week, every week, for about six months, trying to kind of turn around her church's small group ministry. And so I asked her when she was going to get a break, and she just looked at me and said, that was my break. You don't get it. I'm already a week and a half behind. Everybody works like this at my church. It's just kind of the price of doing business. If you want to make it, you put in the work. And I honestly, I had not really noticed it at that point. But over the next few years, the number of people that I came across that had on their resume former employee of this church was staggering and almost None of them had any desire to be in ministry ever again. It just kind of burned through people. And it started at the top with a leader who worked insane hours. And he created this culture where people just felt like cogs in the never-ending production machine. About six months later, that friend was gone from the ministry, burned out on it altogether. And the pastor who started that culture... Well, he just got a raise. And then he went on to a bigger church. And he left behind this kind of toxic culture that that church is still trying to clean up. Now, I say that not to pass judgment. Uh, not at all. Some really great things were happening there. But to say, kind of in keeping where we left off last week, that we live in what uh, the philosopher Byung Chul Han calls the burnout society. And the question is, at what cost? 
do we do all of these things? I would hazard a guess that for a lot of us, it's not hard to imagine the kind of work culture that's like a hungry dog. It'll just eat whatever it is that you put in front of it. And and maybe like this friend of mine, you can imagine a better future. Part of you also feels like the grind is just how the game is played. If you're a student, you know what that's like. Particularly those of you who are in your junior or senior years, you've got that voice in your head, one more elective, one more extracurricular, one more way to make me stand out from the pack. You live under the ominous shadow of never enough. And that voice in the back of your head always telling you, work harder, work faster, work longer. But no matter how hard you grind, it's never enough. Because our culture is always geared for more. Spiritual formation is a a reality, not just for those who follow Jesus. Uh, We are shaped no matter where we go, for good or for bad. Uh, We are formed by a culture that does everything that it can to index our heart toward more. That keeps us from finding the place where we can enjoy and, and rest and delight in what we have and in our life with God. And we end up just kind of getting stuck in the angst and the restlessness of you're only as good as the next thing you do. You're only as happy as the next thing you buy. So are there practices of Jesus that have the ability to index our heart toward the love and rest and mercy of the kingdom and away from an identity that is rooted in accomplishment and the the frantic desire to do more, to produce more, to have more. Well, the good news is yes, and Sabbath is one of them. We are in the second week of our Lenten series on the spiritual practice of Sabbath, and I gave a kind of 30,000-foot overview of that on Ash Wednesday. And then last week I talked about how Sabbath is a rhythm of, of work and rest woven into the very fabric of creation itself, through which we imitate and, and, and mirror God's presence in the world. In the Genesis story, God works for six days and then rests on the seventh. And so the Sabbath command that comes at Sinai in Exodus becomes this kind of creative, life-giving space from which we are able to delight in God and in the world that God has made and God's presence in that world. But the cadence of our culture looks and feels very different. It's that frantic pace of, of more, get more, accomplish more. And so today we are going to talk about how Sabbath is a way to resist the cultural gods of accumulation and accomplishment. John Mark Homer puts it like this in his book Garden City. In Exodus, the Sabbath is a command. It's a way of saying yes to God and to the story of creation. In Deuteronomy, the Sabbath is a way of saying no to Egypt and its system. And so with that, turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. 
the setting is this. After an entire generation has passed away in the desert of Sinai and the people are ready to enter into the promised land of Canaan, they hear the Sabbath command one more time. But listen carefully because there are some subtle differences. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall work and labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or, or female servant, nor your ox or your donkey or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, Almighty God, we ask that you would come upon us by the power of your Spirit. Open these scriptures to us, that we may hear your voice, and in hearing, follow you and become your faithful disciples. We pray this in the name of the one we are following, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so I want you to put on your biblical history hats for just a moment. Um, First five books of the Old Testament, uh, known as the Torah in Hebrew, which simply means uh, teachings or law, uh, they tell a story that spans several decades. Uh, So one thing to note is that Exodus and Deuteronomy are written with two very different settings, two very different generations in mind. Um, On the one hand, Exodus is written uh, while Israel is fresh out of Egypt. I mean, you know, mud from the the brick pits still in between their toes. It was written among a people who were slaves to an empire. An empire that saw them as human fuel for Pharaoh's empire expansion projects. And their whole identity was rooted in the production of bricks. So the words that God then speaks to them from Sinai are about laying out this vision of what their freedom and their flourishing looks like. And it's, it's kind of this picture of God's intent for all of humanity from the dawn of creation. By the time that we get this command in Deuteronomy, however, it is an entirely different ballgame. There is all kind of debate about when Deuteronomy was actually written, but the setting is not in question. It is to a generation that has come of age in this transition, this generation that has no felt experience of slavery, who grew up away from bondage, but yet not quite yet to the promise And so Deuteronomy gets its name from two Greek words, uh, deuteros, which means second, and nomos, meaning law. So literally, Deuteronomy just means the second law or the second giving of the law. And again, this is important because it is written to two different generations, a very different crowd. Uh, So 
the first giving of the law in Exodus was to the parents and the grandparents who were caught up in the machine of this empire that had a ravenous appetite. Uh, if you remember the story, uh, you know, think back to uh, you know, Sunday school, think back to the Prince of Egypt, whatever it is. Uh, Israel was making bricks for Pharaoh's store cities. Right, so picture this, entire cities that were built just for housing excess grain. If that sounds crazy to you, consider that there are more storage units in the United States than there are McDonald's restaurants in the United States. Just let that sink in for a second. So Egypt has all of this excess. Uh, Producing more and more and selling out of this excess became the economic model. The whole thing is this empire driven by a need for more. Hold that thought over here. Deuteronomy, on the other hand, the second giving of the law, is, a, is addressed to the next generation right before they're about to enter into the promised land, a, a generation that has no experience of slavery. And so take a look at the differences in the two commands. Uh, in Exodus, the first word is remember, as in do not forget the Sabbath because now you are free, you do not have to look back. In Deuteronomy, the first word is observe, as in celebrate, enjoy. It's a day to relish. Now, the middle part is basically the same until you get to this added phrase in Deuteronomy, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you, or that they may rest in the same way that you are able to rest. Sabbath is this day when all are equally given the opportunity to rest. And I want you to notice that with that little shift, the entire rationale for the command changes. It pivots entirely. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, The Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. In Exodus, the command looks back to Eden. In Deuteronomy, it looks back to Egypt. This time, the Sabbath comes as a reminder not to go back to Egypt. Not to go back to the place where you have no value, no dignity, no rest. The place where you work all day, every day, just to do it again tomorrow. Biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann, who taught uh, just down the road at uh, Columbia Seminary for a number of years, he notes how this language of restlessness is strung all throughout the Exodus story. Uh, This is what Pharaoh says to his supervisors when the Israelites ask for a day of rest and worship. Why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Verse 5, yet you want them to stop working. 
Verse 7, you shall no longer give people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks that they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. Let heavier work be laid upon them, then they will labor at it and pay no attention to their deceptive words. I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be lessened in the least. Complete your work, the same daily assignment as when you were given straw. Why did you not finish the required quantity of bricks yesterday and today as you did before? No straw is to be given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. You are lazy, lazy. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work, for no straw will be given to you, but you shall still deliver the same number of bricks. You shall not lessen the same number of bricks. I mean, the the rhetoric in this is just as relentless as the pace of production. And that's just one paragraph. And you notice how it all starts from the top. Pharaoh has no rest because he is constantly on his supervisors. They have no rest because they are constantly held in check by this production schedule. And then the slaves have no rest because they are constantly oppressed by the nature of producing these bricks so that they can build. They have this daily quota to satisfy. The whole system is designed around the idea of more. And you got to wonder if the Egyptian gods ever rested. So when God tells Israel to keep the Sabbath, it's a way of reminding them how bad it was in Egypt. You don't ever want to go back there. And you got to wonder, why would anyone be tempted to go back? If we're honest, I think it's because some of us cannot imagine an identity that is not rooted in accomplishment. With our endless desire for more, we just we end up getting kind of restless. Um, I have heard it said that the most uh, original contribution to American literature or to, to world literature that America ever made was the to-do list. And I have known so many people, men mostly, although it's not by any means limited to gender, who have told me that they want to be home, they want to be around their kids more, but honestly, it's just easier to work all the time. They get kind of addicted to this drug of production or chasing the next promotion or kind of bumping up the next pay rung. And it's not just this corporate mentality. I did... Uh, marriage counseling with a guy who got so hooked on, you know, watching the payouts grow as an Uber driver while he was kind of moonlighting that he missed three dates in a row with his wife. Ended up going, kind of coming to reality when he found himself going from LAX to Las Vegas, which is like an eight-hour round trip just so he could get a little bit more. We all know what it's like to live with Pharaoh's voice in our head saying, lazy, lazy, do more. So if that's you, Sabbath, 
is a way to say, enough. Enough work. And work is a good thing that God has blessed, but there is more to life than production, and Sabbath is a way to break our addiction to accomplishment. Our our practice for the week is simply to take a digital Sabbath. It's a way of saying no to work or even the thought of work. You don't have to work seven days a week. You can look back with Egypt in the rear view. And you can remember that God has freed you. And that means you don't have to go back to an empire where your whole identity is rooted in what you can do. You are part of a new kingdom with a different king altogether. And, I mean, and this is so important for us. Sabbath is also about looking forward. Uh, As they stand on the edge of this land of promise, Sabbath is also a reminder to uh, look over this land which is good and beautiful and which will make them you know, rich and prosperous because the land is theirs. It is, they are free to, to till the earth. It's going to be really easy to get caught up in this cycle of producing and consuming. And so while Sabbath looks back, it also looks forward. It also is a warning. Remember how God freed you from Egypt. But also God freed you so you do not become like Egypt. Don't get caught recreating the very thing that I have freed you from. History is brutal about this. Once the oppressed are free, it is often a short step toward becoming the oppressor. That is the story of of empires. And to get the kind of life of excess of Pharaoh, you need cheap labor. You need a system that uses people up, a system where people receive no rest so that you can live a life of rest. And to do that, you need to see people as less than you. Uh, So you don't have to think about it. You need to reduce people to being productivity machines. You need them not to take a break. And, I mean, we tend to think that slavery is over, right? Um, At least in this country, we have labor laws, we have workers' rights, we have unions, mandatory time off, all good things, all necessary things. And so we tend to think that slavery is not a problem. Uh, At least for us, we think that Sabbath is not really a social issue. But in reality, slavery has just been outsourced. According to our mission partner, International Justice Mission, there are over 40 million enslaved people in the world today, more than were ever trafficked at the height of the transatlantic slave trade. One writer notes that when economists draw up an image of the global economic system, it actually looks like a pyramid. Notice how at the top, uh, seven 0.7% of humanity. And that 0.7% has an astounding 45.9% of the world's wealth. And who makes up that 0.7% are people with over $1 million in assets. The next rung down, just shy of 8% of the world, have assets of over $100,000. And that is not just money in the bank, that is your house, your car, your retirement savings. 
Together, those 8% of the world's population own 85.6% of the world's wealth. It's one of those kind of humbling things. The next time your kids ask you if you are rich, a little bit of perspective, a little bit sobering. We tend to think of that 0.7% as rich. But you notice also the bottom 70% of the world population, the vast majority of which are in Southeast Asia and Africa. Do you want to guess where those 40 million slaves live? They live in the places that make our stuff, our t-shirts and our shoes, our smartphones and the lamp by our couch. IJM notes that a quarter of those enslaved are children, 71% are women, many of them working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, no Sabbath in sight. That's the other side of the coin here. Sabbath is an art form about connecting to the rhythm of creation that God has woven into the world. But Sabbath is also a full-on revolt against empire. For followers of Jesus, it's a practice of counterformation. It's, it's a way of putting a check on the materialism and the consumerism of our culture that would seek to make us in its image that ends up enslaving both the wealthy and the poor alike. Now, I say this, you know, not to lay a guilt trip or anything like that, not in the least, but it is, if it is God's heart for those who bear his image to find rest for their souls, all this is to say that there are layers to why Sabbath is important. And I know it's like super tempting when we see these statistics and the reality of how enmeshed our global economic system is with the presence of things like slavery and sweatshop labor to just kind of throw our hands up and say, well, what can I do about it? But here is the good news. Sabbath is an invitation one day a week to do nothing at all. To provide rest for others by saying no to the need to buy anything. To give thanks to God for what you've already got. Another reason to put down the phone is, uh, I mean, behavioral economists have got you pegged, right? Like, they know how to put the, the pictures in the, uh, the products in your Instagram feed to get you to chase the link to uh, the webpage to put the thing in your cart to get it from the warehouse to your home in two days or less. Uh, for me, it's whenever I see, like, these outdoor, you know, like, products for, like, how to, you know, have, like, this really cool camping experience I find myself kind of almost unable to resist the gravitational pull and clicking on the button. But Sabbath is a day to just simply enjoy the gifts that you've already received. So often we, we spiritualize Sabbath and make it about our rest and what we can do, what we can't do. But what if it's an invitation to draw close to Jesus and to through abiding in him, begin to imagine the world the way that he intends it? What if it's an invitation to rest from our desire to accomplish and our need 
to accumulate. Do a little thought experiment with me. I mean, what would happen in our culture, in our world, if we all just stopped buying and selling one day a week? I'm not talking about blue laws or anything like that, but what would happen if online stores shut down their checkouts, if bakeries hung up their aprons, if warehouses stopped moving boxes, if Uber drivers gave way to bicycles? What would that be like for the poor in our cities? What would it be like for our culture if for a whole day there was time and space to rest and be present to one another and to God. Sounds impossible, idealistic maybe, but imagine the freedom that would come from that. What would it do for us as a community of Jesus followers to go a whole day without buying anything, to to cultivate a habit of delighting in what we've already got? Imagine a day when you could turn off the voice of the pharaohs in your own heads and instead listen to the God who created us and invites us to rest and who tells us, you do not have to work anymore. You do not have to buy anymore. You don't have to move up the corporate ladder. You don't have to know more. You do not have to get a perfect score on your SAT You do not have to have your kids in year-round baseball camps. You do not have to be younger or have flawless skin. You do not have to make everyone happy. You do not have to win more. You do not have to have your identity rooted in making bricks. Because on this one day, you get to rest. You get to allow others to rest. You don't have to meet the expectations of your dad or your boss or your 401k or your quota. You simply get to be free with the God who is nothing like Pharaoh, who instead is a lot like the good shepherd who leads you to rest. Amen.